Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. So, for the record, uh, today is September 10th. This is Lesson 2 for Ecclesiastes. And um, let's pray and we'll, we'll jump into our study. Our Father, we thank you now for the great joy and pleasure to, to look into your Word. We thank you for your Word. We thank you for, for preserving it for us. And now we have it. We can hold it in our laps or in our phones. And we're very thankful for that. And so your Word is a living Word. And we pray it would run swiftly and powerfully now today through our hearts, bear fruit in our lives for your glory. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that he'd be more precious to us today than before. And we pray in his name. Amen. Dan, can you turn that up just a little bit? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Did your podcast last night so be caught up? I could hear them very clearly. <laughs> really? Okay. All right. Well, we'll try to, try to uh, do our part. So, uh, just wondering, anybody read the book of Ecclesiastes uh, last week and, uh, and have a comment or what? Shane, how, how do you feel about reading through it? What? We'll pick it up on the uh, microphone here. Oh, okay. How's that? Is that still? I guess they don't want to do Ecclesiastes. I think I think now we're coming out of there rather than there, so that's probably why it's a little better. Y'all hear me okay back there? Good? Okay. All right. Chang, you're gonna give us a testimony. We still I actually get a little bit of bleeding, but I'm trying to figure out. Is this saying you just switch this over? I just thought I turned it off. As much as we want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> sure. Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. I think. Know. All right, we'll see. I'm going to have to go get leave to... Okay. Okay. So, tell us about your reading experience. Uh, well, I didn't do it all in one sitting. I did it in two. Okay. But um, I, I think this whole week has been just thinking a little bit more about the finality of life and having that to affect everything and just getting perspective on heaven. I'll get that solved. I think it's good. it was good in one sitting, like you said. There was a few things where I'm like, oh, that verse is over here too, and she's in terror. She might not see you do it slower. Yeah. Well, the more we read the Bible, the more we read God's Word, it begins to be coherent to us, so that's good. Anybody else want to comment about your reading Ecclesiastes last week? Okay. Well, last week. Oops. 
last week. That's good. Okay. Okay, testing. One, two, three, four, five. That's good. Lower? Too, too much? A little much. Too much firepower there, uh, Mike. Okay. Is that still too loud? That's good. Okay. Okay. Now, last week we just kind of dove into the book and tried to get our get a little bit of a feel for it. But this week we are going to begin uh, working through the working through the text. I hope we will get through Ecclesiastes one. Uh, 1 through 11, so let's just turn to chapter 1 and begin to uh, dig into it. Oh, by the way, um, I prepare these notes um, sometimes as late as Sunday morning, but if you'd like for me, if you'd like a digital copy of them, some of you like to look at them on your tablet or something, give me your name and an email, and I'll be sure you get a copy of them. Okay, let's look now at Ecclesiastes 1. One, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. But just a couple of things I'd like to draw out of this first uh, first verse. One is uh, this word preacher. It's the Hebrew word koheleth, and that just means one that convenes a group or brings a group uh, together. Uh, different, different. Uh, Translations have different words there. Preacher is the ESV. Uh, teacher, convener, uh, things like that. It, it may be of interest to you that the word, the title, the English title for our book Ecclesiastes comes from the, uh, the Greek word ekklesia, which we know as the church. Yeah, technically means one, a, a group called out for a meeting. It was used in, in secular Greek for that, and in a community, a group would be called out for a, for a meeting. So that's where our word ecclesia comes from. That's where we get our title. <clears throat> now, more importantly, I think, by the way, I don't know what we're going to call this guy, preacher, or some just leave it Koheleth, because uh, they don't know exactly what, how to say it, but I mean, how, to, how to interpret it. Uh, we might just keep it with preacher since that's what the ESV what the ESV has. But I think the bigger issue here is the identity of the preacher. Who is, uh, who is this person? By the way, I think we looked at this a little bit last week. There's really two, two individuals speaking in this book. There's, I guess, what we call uh, the narrator, and he may be the one that kind of put it all together. And so he shows up here Notice this, it says the words of the preacher, the son of David. Uh, and it doesn't get to it doesn't get to first person until you get to verse twelve. So verse twelve says, I the preacher have been king. So verse twelve is where the where the author really begins, the writer really begins. But we have this maybe a narrator that's kind of put the book together. He doesn't show up too much. He's he's he begins the book and he ends the book. But it could be the same guy. It could be Solomon doing his own uh, doing his own thing. But uh, I hope you'll bear with me just for a few minutes as we talk about authorship. I think it's really important. So just uh, bear with me some on this. I'll just read my notes here. Some contemporary scholars uh, question, or I, I would even say reject, 
of Solomonic authorship. So notice a couple of reasons why they say that. You see in verse uh, 112, the writer says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. So they would say, well, that couldn't be Solomon because this is past tense, saying I, I used to be the king over Jerusalem. But other Hebrew scholars say, no, the, technically the Hebrew could include a past tense and a present tense. I was king and I'm still, I'm still the king. So they don't think that holds uh, much water. And then now look at chapter 2, verse 9. So I, speaking of this writer, the preacher, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. So when this fellow saying, I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, who would he be referring to? David. That, to David. So that would sound like a very nice thing for a son to say about his father or anybody to say about King David. So that would be another argument. They'd say, well, this couldn't be Solomon because uh, he wouldn't say that about his, about his own father. But um, other scholars recognize, maybe he's not only talking about David, but there were other kings that were in Jerusalem. Uh, like Melchizedek was a king that was in a uh, priest and a leader in Jerusalem. And it could have been all the, all the pagan Jebusite kings that were in Jerusalem. So he may be saying, I surpassed all of those, all of those men um, and not even be referring to David. The other thing that the, that the liberal scholars really like to uh, hang their hat on about rejecting Solomon as the, as the uh, author is uh, the whole idea of the Hebrew that's used in the book of Ecclesiastes. And, um, and they, uh, there is some development in the Hebrew language. You think about English, um, the English that was spoken in England in 1500 is quite different than the English spoken today. So there, it is proper to say there's some development in the, in the Hebrew language. And so uh, these scholars that reject Solomon as the author say this this Hebrew language is what we find even during uh, the post-exilic time which would be after the exile which would be like 300 400 BC a long time later so so what they're saying is that uh, it looks like maybe this is written by Solomon but it wasn't really because the Hebrew indicates that somebody Oh, 700 years later, wrote this book and made it look like it was written by Solomon. Well, a couple of things about that. Uh, one is the Hebrew scholars say, well, don't, don't make that bear too much burden because there's still questions about how the Hebrew language developed. And it could be proper that an editor did modernize some of the language, like if you've read a copy of uh, Pilgrim's Progress, it's okay to read a new one. I mean, to read one that you know, it takes out some of Bunyan's uh, language from the 1600s. It doesn't mean Bunyan didn't write it, it just was modernized with some language. So, so that point doesn't help the, the Hebrew language. But folks, here's the more important thing. This is what I want to impress on you uh, today. And that is that uh, if that position is true, and Solomon isn't really the author, but somebody 700 years later wrote it and made it look like it was Solomon, that's a very serious accusation. There's the big word. Uh, that would make Ecclesiastes a pseudepigraphon. 
So you don't want to be a pseudepigraphon. That's not a good thing. Pseudo means false. Epigraphon means a writing, so a false writing. And there's a bunch of those. Yeah, I, I listed a couple of them, like the Psalms of Solomon is one. The Book of Enoch is another one. And so, so these are forgeries. They're books that are, that are written by somebody else, but they want to have authority and influence, so they use the name of somebody of an antiquity that has authority and notoriety, like Solomon. Well, that's a problem, folks, because if that really is the, the case, then not only did the Jewish scholars that put the Old Testament canon together fail for that, or said it doesn't matter, but even more so, the, the Old Testament canon that we have today is the same Bible that the Lord Jesus and the apostles had. When we read verses like um, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, what does that say? All, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Speaking of inspiration. But when they say all Scripture, they're not talking about the Gospel of John. That wasn't around at that time. Well, it may have been, but it wasn't part of the canon. But they're talking about the Old Testament. So I, I just want to I hope you feel the weight of that, that, that for some modern kind of um, liberal scholars um, to say, well, this is a lovely book, but it, it, it really isn't what you think it is. It's written by somebody 700 years later, and it wasn't written by Solomon. That's a very serious position to take because it, it undermines the authority of Scripture. It undermines uh, the divine revelation of Scripture. And um, that's not what Jesus did and the apostles. But this is personal to me because I did you may know, a doctoral work at Baylor University. And I only had one professor that held to a high position of Scripture and all the rest of them took that position. It was their default to, to uh, emphasize the human dimension of the Bible and pretty much to deny the divine inspiration of the Bible. And uh, if I'd have known that, I probably wouldn't have chosen that school, but it turned out to be a, an important experience for me. But well, that, I still remember, that's been nearly 40 years ago, and I still remember how depressing those classes were. Some of these were great Hebrew and Greek scholars, and they brought you know, great insight from the, from the Bible. But to know that that they really didn't see it as a divinely inspired book just took the wind out of my sails and, and uh, it was kind of a tough tough time for me so that's why I feel uh, so strongly about that and I think it's important for us too because every now and then you'll see some secular article in Newsweek or something about the Bible and, and they take this approach the Bible's a lovely book but it's not really what we think it is and scholars all scholars understand now that it it's not as old as we thought, or you know those kinds of things. Uh, I think the point I want to, to try to make for you today is that when you hear those kind of arguments, you can be certain that valid, serious scholars that have a high view of Scripture have answered those questions. They may look like they are uh, they're strong arguments against the divine authority and inspiration of Scripture, but that's just because they're only speaking from one side of the story, and there's beautiful, brilliant scholars uh, kind of on our side, I guess we would say, but that have a high view of Scripture uh, that they use a high level of scholarship to debunk those arguments. And the authorship of Ecclesiastes is one of those. And uh, so, just to say, 
that we are, uh, that my position is a king named Solomon wrote this book. And, um, and we're going to approach the book from that uh, perspective. So let's look at well, any question or comment about that. I wasn't here last week, Dan, so maybe you covered this, but do you know if there are references to Ecclesiastes in the New Testament? Any references to the authorship of the book suggesting? Is there anything the New Testament seems to comment on that one way or the other? Yeah, I d there are no direct quotations, but there are allusions to the same concepts in Ecclesiastes. But the big the big thing to me is, uh, you remember in, uh, in Luke 24, after the resurrection, Jesus met up with those two fellows on the way, uh, and then later on he met with the, uh, with the, with the disciples, and he said, uh, here, look at it. this may be of interest to you. Look at uh, Luke 24. So we know about his his walk along with the uh, with the two the two men on the road to Emmaus, but then he he appeared to his disciples later in verse 44. This is Luke 24:44. Then he said to them, "These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses." and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. It, if you just read over that, you don't realize what Jesus is saying, but he is, he's picking out the three divisions of the Old Testament. The Law of Moses, that's the first five books. The prophets, which would include the major and the minor prophets. And then what he calls the psalms, but are also called the writings. And that's everything else. I may not have that technically exactly right, but the point is, um, Jesus is referring to the whole canon of the, of the Old Testament as it was at that time. The, there's lots of discussion about when the canon of the Old Testament was finally uh, agreed upon, but it was as early as like 200 B.C. So it had been well established for a couple of hundred years by the time Jesus began to read it as a young Jewish boy. So, um, so uh, John, to your point, I don't think there's any direct quotations, but I think this is a clear reference to the writings, and, and uh, there's no argument about what the writings were during that time that include the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay, let's look at a couple of uh, um, <clears throat> things about evidence for Solomon as the preacher. I think it's, it's obvious when the writer says the words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, he didn't use the word Solomon, but who does he expect us to think about when he writes that? Adonijah or Josiah? I don't think so. He expects that we think about uh, Solomon. So why didn't he just say the words of Solomon? That would have cleared it up pretty good, wouldn't it? There's a lot of language in scripture where people identify themselves with I mean, Jesus, you know, uh, well, people identifying themselves with uh, their family members or with who their, you know, servants to, Okay, I think that's good. So kind of a genealogy identity there, that's, that's good. I like it. Any other thoughts? 
especially if Solomon wrote this. <clears throat> well, maybe uh, that we're going to look at when he wrote this. He may have been at a, at a time of deep humility and maybe shame for the life that he had lived. And so maybe he just doesn't want to use his own name. He's a humble, a hum, humble author. Um, one other writer, I can't remember which one it was, says that Koheleth, which is translated in the ESV by preacher, uh, could have even become, become a pen name for, for uh, Solomon. So when people saw Kohela, they knew that they were talking about uh, about Solomon. Well, uh, this is in, this was interesting. I picked this up from you see the footnote about clear allusions in Ecclesiastes to facts about Solomon's life. So these are you can see references in Ecclesiastes that go back to First uh, Kings, really chapters one through eleven, which is about Solomon's uh, Solomon's life. Just interesting things. Um, some of them are almost exact quotes, like the the uh, one Ecclesiastes seven twenty with First Kings eight forty six. There is no man who does not sin. That's almost a direct quote. But one I thought that was not a happy quote, but very interesting, is uh, Ecclesiastes seven twenty eight, and obviously we'll get to this passage and understand more about what it means but uh, I thought it was interesting just seeing this um, Ecclesiastes 7 uh, let's start with verse uh, 27 behold this is what I found says the preacher while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly but I have not found one man among a thousand I found but a woman among all these I have not found. Well, I don't know where he's going with that, but but uh, we won't look look at it. But in First Kings 11, 1 through eight, that's where we have the record that he had what, 300 wives and 700 concubines. Maybe I got that backwards. It doesn't matter. He had a, a thousand women in his life during that time. And here's a, re a reference to a thousand women. I think that's kind of interesting that, that uh, that's definitely an allusion uh, to the historic record of Solomon uh, that we have. Well, let's look at uh, this timeline that I've put together that, here for you. What is, what would, and we'll see more, we'll see more of this next week when we get to his account of all of his investigations. But look at the Look at the timeline. I didn't. It's, it's not to scale, but I wanted you to to see it. So notice uh, the reign of David was 1010 BC uh, to 970. Now remember, when we're doing BC, we're going we're getting smaller, okay? Because we're heading toward the AC. I mean the the BC AD line, which would be kind of like zero in the birth of Christ. So the reign of David was for 40 years from 1010. B.C. to 970, and then the reign of Solomon begins, of course, immediately after that, 970. But apparently, uh, scholars have understood uh, in 1 Kings 11, that's the, that's the uh, account of his apostasy. When he, he had already started marrying foreign women, but that's the account of where it makes it really clear that the foreign women seduced his heart away from Yahweh to their 
uh, to their pagan gods. So, so we call that his time of apostasy. So you can see he was uh, king for 30 years uh, before he apostatized. Um, and then he died 10 years later. So we don't know how long his apostasy was. And there's, well, there's still discussion, did, it, did, did um, Solomon ever repent? Well, I think the book of Ecclesiastes is evidence that he did. So now he's writing this book. Um, and it's really interesting how much he includes uh, young people in this book. It's not just, it's for everyone, but he really tries to get the attention of young people, particularly toward the, toward the end of the book. So maybe, um, and then let's see, he, so he died at the age of 60. So I, I think it's very, very reasonable to say that Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes sometime in the last decade of his life, from 50 to 60 years old. We don't, we don't have any way of knowing that, I don't think. But uh, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the perspective I want to have as we read this book. Uh, he is, he's done all this investigation, uh, maybe even during his apostasy, to find out what is the meaning of life and how does life make sense. And I think he does that during the last uh, 10 years of his life. Okay, any thoughts about Solomon as the author of the book? Huh? I was going to share this note in my Bible says it, it would have to be Solomon because if you look at verse 12, he says he's been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And after Solomon, his son, the, the kingdom divided. Okay. There was whoever was king over Jerusalem was not king over Israel. Okay, good. I thought that was an interesting Yeah, that's thought. a good point. <laughs> Yeah, don't let these modern-day liberal scholars blow you away with their highfalutin whatever. We've got highfalutin guys on our side, too. I mean, that just makes sense, doesn't it? But they won't quote that verse. So. Okay. Good. Thank you, Teresa. All right. Well, let's look now at uh, verse 2. ESV, a vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And if you remember last week, we looked at this word hebel. And, um, and you remember what, what literally the word hebel means, what it refers to? Breath. Yeah, breath or vapor. Yeah. Mist. A whiff of smoke. So that's the technical, literal meaning of the word. But, of course, uh, Solomon uh, uses uses a metaphorical meaning of the word, and it gets all kinds of of translations for what the word means. Um, some we looked last week uh, say it means meaninglessness. Everything is meaningless, but Solomon doesn't say that in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says some things are meaningful and some things are not. So that doesn't seem to be the right the right way. Even vanity, I think, is maybe from the, the scholars I've been reading, do not agree that's the best uh, reference. I think, it, I don't know if you have ESV with notes on the bottom, there's a note there about uh, the word hevel translated vanity or vain refers concretely to mist, vapor, or mere breath, and metaphorically to something that is fleeting or elusive. So we, uh, 
we kind of came to this idea last week that there's maybe two nuances the way the word is used, this word hevel is used in, um, in the book. And one would be uh, brief, like a mist over, you know, over, the, over the lake in the morning. It's there for a, few, for a while and then gone. Brief. And uh, the other would be elusive, like a, like a whiff of smoke. And you can't, you can't grab it. You, you, you can see it for a few moments, but you can't. It's elusive. So, so if you read that back into verse 2, um, it gets kind of complicated to use both of those, but um, you can see one of the just trying to use the word breath. Uh, if you read that back into there, it says the merest of breaths. Says the preacher, the merest merest of breaths. Everything is a breath. So this is an interesting construction because uh, it actually uses the word. Hebel four times. No, five times. Hebel of Hebels, says the preacher. Hebel of Hebels, all is Hebel. Um, so this is really, the, the writer here is really bearing down. This is, you can see, this is called a, uh, a superlative intensity. What does superlative mean? When something's superlative, it is the highest. The highest, yeah, the highest and best over the top, none greater than the, the superlative is the, that there's none greater, nothing stronger. So he's, he's saying, um, so the writer Solomon is saying, he's really making this point. This is, the, uh, this is the thesis statement of the book of Ecclesiastes. So he's getting it right started here. And by the way, it, it, it frames the book. Here it is in 1-2 and it's also in 12 Eight, I think, same verse, I mean, same, same thought. Everything is vanity. So he's framing the book uh, with this, with this idea. We looked last, last week, uh, particularly talked about trying to understand the validity of using the word brief. Uh, we looked at some other verses. For example, we looked at Psalm 144:4. Man is like a breath; his days are like a passing shadow. So the word is used to describe the brevity of man in other places in the Bible, um, in, the, in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament. There are several references there. Think about uh, James 4, where remember James is saying, what do you think you're doing? Saying, we're gonna go to this other town and, and set up shop and we're gonna make some money. He says, you're not thinking clearly because don't you know, let's see, I, I wrote it in, don't you know that you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So uh, James, of course, is the wisdom book of the New Testament. So he has this exact same, uh, exact same thought there. So now then, uh, so verse three is this. So, so there's the thesis of the book. Vanity of vanities or mere breaths, merest of breaths, merest of breaths, breaths. Uh, all is a breath. All is. Um, temporary and elusive. That's his. That's what he's going to to uh, try to prove. What he's going to set out to prove uh, in the book. And then he has this rhetorical question um, in verse three, and this sets the tone for the book. And this is the key problem that 
uh, Solomon's going to address. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He asks the same question. You might, might just look so you'll see how pervasive it is. Like in chapter 2, uh, verse 11, 2.11, uh, then I considered, and this is during his investigation of, of what is meaningful in life, when I, so 2.11, when I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Uh, he repeats that several more times in the book, but I wanted you to see that. And notice, um, he adds this little phrase. Uh, it's, a, it's not only vain, it's not only, it's not only uh, temporary and elusive, it's uh, striving after the wind. So have you ever seen a little child run after you know, a leaf or something? They're striving after the wind. And he's going to point that out, that that is another uh, vain. That's, that's, his, that's another way of him describing um, the elusiveness of chasing things in this world. That the wind, you can't get your, you can't get your hands on it. Now look at uh, back in verse 2, I mean, verse 3 in chapter 1. This word gain, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This word, you can see my notes there, this word gain means, uh, it means, it, it's an it's a, uh, accounting term. So, like it, it's, you like that? It's an accounting term. And it means uh, uh, what's left over after the expenses and the income is balanced, is there anything left over? Is there any profit? Is there, uh, uh, is there any surplus? Now he doesn't answer the question. He just makes, he just gives the question. He's going to spend the book uh, giving us the implied answer. Which, what do you think is the implied answer? Don't make this too hard. Nothing. Yeah, nothing. What is to gain? And he's going to say nothing. He doesn't say that yet. He's going to begin his argument here just uh, in just a moment. Um, so the point he's going to begin to make here is, uh, folks, uh, you can work all of your life and you can think you've gained something by all of your toil, but you're going to die. And you will have nothing gained by what you've toiled for under the sun. Because you're going to die. And that's his, he, he loves to talk about death. And uh, our friend David Gibson has this book, uh, living life backward beginning beginning with the with the assurance that we're going to die and then work back from that. But it sounds like a depressing place to start, doesn't it? But it really isn't if you see what Solomon is saying. So um, so the implied answer is nothing is gained. But notice that he uses this term at, at which he toils under the sun. So what, is, what do you think he refers to when he's saying toiling under the sun? Literally, it could be just on the earth, under the sun. I think poetically he's talking about this side of eternity. So okay. Before you die, all of your work, before eternity really begins. Okay. Yeah, so um, John says it refers to uh, kind of the, uh, the difference between t the temporal life and the eternal life. Yeah. 
while they're under the sun. It's, some scholars say, well, he's just talking about the secular lifestyle. He's not. He's talking about what all of us have to do. We all have to toil under the sun, under the conditions of this fallen world, this uh, uh, this creation that has been cursed and that is you know, under uh, under a curse. Um, so I think that's a good. I think that's pervasive through the book. But also, it, it does just mean, as we're going to see here in just a minute, that uh, the sun is not only Describe, being under the sun is not only describing the uh, uh, kind of a particular spiritual condition, but it also describes just how temporary things are. Under the sun, every day the sun comes and goes, and so what do you gain, you know, at the end of the day? Okay, let's. We got to keep moving here. So look at um, look now at verses four through eleven, and he has this poem, and he's going to begin to. Uh, to answer the question posed in verse 3 about, and we're all verses 2 and 3, about what does it mean that everything is vanity. I'd like to read the poem to you. It's a really beautiful poem. And I want you to notice the, the ebb and flow of it. It's like, uh, well, think about the, uh, um, uh, the, uh, the, the surf, you know, the, uh, what do you call that? The tide, yeah, the tide coming in and out. There's a, there's a rhythmic flow to the, to the poem. So let me just read it to us. A generation, this is verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. So just, uh, we're going to kind of work through this quickly. Notice, uh, by the way, he's here he's beginning to answer his question by referring to observations in the, in the um, creation. Next week we're going to look at another way he's trying to answer this question, and that is in his um, own investigation where he's, you know, where he's trying everything to see if he can find pleasure and meaning, meaning in life. But notice verse 4 is really the, um, the beginning of the, of the poem. And then verse 11 is the end. And notice he brackets the poem with this very point, the brevity of life and death. See verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And then verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things. And it can literally be former people. There's no remembrance of former people, nor will there be any remembrance of people that come later. 
other people. Not only do we, not only do we die, people forget about us. Does that hurt your feelings? <laughs> do you remember your great great grandparents? I doubt it. I don't even know the names of my great grandparents. I still remember my grandparents, but I think uh, we're Sawyer to remember his grandfather. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. <laughs> For a little while, but but his children won't. I mean, you see, we're, we're see what uh, you see what's being said there, and. And, but notice the contrast in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And that's the, that's the point he's trying to make. Uh, the earth goes through all of its cycles and it remains. He's not trying to make some deep theological point, the earth remains forever. He's just saying the earth is permanent, but the people on the earth are not. I think it's Gibson or somebody says, this is like a canvas being painted and we walk across it just for a little while and then we go away. Uh, one writer said, the house abides forever, but the tenants are always changing. <laughs> uh, is that funny? I guess maybe it comes to this, but that's his point. Uh, he wants us to accept the fact that not only is our life brief, but it will end. And we have to start, uh, start with that. So notice what he says in verses uh, 5 through 7. He uses this endless cycle, the repetition of the world cycle, and I think for two reasons. So the sun goes up and the sun comes down. And then it hastens to the place where it rises. I think Gibson said, the sun chases, it ta chases its tail, you know, just around and around and around. The wind does the same thing. It blows on different circuits. Uh, and it kind of ends up where it started. And then the streams run to the, to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they, there they flow again. I thought about uh, fourth grade science class where you had this picture of you know, the, the water running to the ocean and then you had evaporation and the water was pulled up and, and then it rained over the lakes and the rivers and then it flowed back into the, it just goes around and around and around. And his point is, um, that even though it shows the constancy of the world, it is an illustration of, uh, of vanity, of, of uh, uh, it doesn't accomplish anything. The, lake, the, the, the uh, oceans are never filled, and the wind never gets stuck in the North Pole. It just keeps you know, moving, moving around, and the sun goes around and around. And so his, his point is two things there, I think. The world is constant and and though it though it has cycles, it doesn't it doesn't change. It's constant and it's permanent, but not people. And so he has this uh, interesting um, this interesting comparison. I think David David Gibson points this out too that he's he's showing the repetitive work of creation, sun, wind, and water uh, is incomprehensible to us. Um, now, we don't understand how it works, how it happens. We just can, can observe it. Um, but it matches a threefold process in us, our speaking, our seeing, and our hearing. Um, verse 8 is an important verse. ESB says, all things are full of weariness. And the scholars I read said a better translation is that um, all things are hard at work. 
So the sun is working hard every day to, you know, to run this cycle. The wind is working hard, blowing and, and work, working through the circuits. And the rain and the water and the, all that is, he, he's saying this is really hard work, but it doesn't accomplish anything. And, and so uh, verse 8 says, a man can't even, we, we don't even grasp you know, what's happening there. Um, and that's this idea of elusive, it's elusive to us. Um, and so then he get, makes the same connection. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, and the ear is, is uh, not filled with hearing. And I think the, the key word there is satisfied. The eye is not satisfied. That the eye, we can't just look at things and say, I'm satisfied, I don't need to look anymore. Or I've heard all I need to hear. Because it's not, what we're looking at and what we're seeing is not satisfying. And what we're going to see here is that that is by design. That God has designed the things that we take into our lives not to satisfy us. He's going to say there's a better way uh, for that to happen. I mean, there's a better way for us to uh, to look at it. But just, uh, I'm going to show you my picture. Because I worked hard on this picture. And it might not look this way uh, the next time. Oh, we don't want to watch the whatever that is. <laughs> That's not my picture. Okay, there. I took this picture this morning. Those are morning glories. So I'm going to close our lesson today with lessons from the morning glories. Uh, this is a plant that Dixie planted two or three years ago, and it's just come out. It's just come back every year, but with seed from the year before. That's kind of cool. And so from about uh, mid-June, this plant starts blooming. And Dixie makes fun of me, but one of the things I love to do is come out every morning and count the morning glories. There's, uh, there's eight this morning. We've had as many as 18 of these morning glories. And I just love to come uh, look at them. And uh, let's see here. So you can just see the, or the brilliance of that guy. That was about 7.30 this morning. And how brilliant, how brilliant they are. But um, if I went to take a picture of this when we get home from church, you wouldn't see this brilliance. Uh, their glory is for about two or three hours, and then the heat hits them and they go away. But what I noticed was um, this. To me, this was an illustration. I just this just dawned on me yesterday, last night. This is an illustration of the last verse in this poem that says, uh, you're going to die and nobody's going to remember you. When I, when I look at these morning glories every morning, I think only about those. I don't think at all about, we probably had nearly 300 morning glories on this plant over the last uh, three, two and a half months. And my mind never goes to the ones yesterday. And I felt kind of bad about that today. Boy, they did a great job for about four hours, but they were gone because we don't remember the things in the past. So uh, that's my illustration. 
to, uh, to help us think about uh, this whole idea of how temporary we are and how not only are we temporary and brief, but literally nobody's going to remember us after a few decades of, of life. Well, we're going to, we'll probably come back and look at, I want to, I want to come back and, and revisit the idea of there's nothing new under the sun. So you might be thinking about that, is that really accurate or not? Because, I mean, we got iPhones, so that's new, isn't it? No, we've always had communication, and we always will. It's just packaged in a different, different way. So uh, next week, we'll begin to look at Solomon's uh, investigation. Thank you. Keep reading.